Welcome to Life Tones, real life information to help you navigate and level the playing field. I'm your host, Tony Felder, but you can call me Tones. In the summer of 2014, after finally finishing my undergrad studies, I walked off of my college campus with a piece of paper that said I'd get my degree in the mail in six to eight weeks. I had a job offer in hand, less than $50 to my name, and an apartment lease ending in just a couple months. I saw this summer as the last free summer I would have for the rest of my life. Well, until retirement. My job offer was for a global investment banking firm, and I was expected to be at their downtown Chicago office in the loop the first week of August, which meant I had ample time in front of me with very little to do, and what's worse, couldn't afford to do much at all. For the next couple of months, I would hang out with friends, teach music at multiple high schools, and spend as much time with my girlfriend that I could. Throughout the summer, I was also spending hours a day studying for various exams. My soon-to-be job in investment banking was a developmental role, and they would eventually have me as a chartered financial analyst. So I had to work up the certification ladder from insurance to the Series 65, 66, Series 7, and so on. There were deadlines for this, and I was well ahead of the curve. About halfway through the summer, I had been apartment hunting letting people know where I was going to be ending up, and for the first time in a while, I was in a state of glee. I followed the playbook. I did what was asked. I finished high school, went to college, and I made it out of the hood. In a matter of years, I was going to be rubbing shoulders with millionaires. And then, my phone rang. It was about a week after I sat for the life and health insurance exam. I had passed with flying colors and was now being remotely trained on how to create a client list and really start to build my book of business. But this call wasn't about my success. Turns out the firm finally finished my background and credit check. Now, at the time, and even now, I have no criminal history except maybe one speeding ticket. But on the credit side, well, I had to pay my own way through college. I came from a single parent household where every penny went to bills and food. And even though I had held a summer job or even a job during school, since I was legally old enough to work, I had never made enough to make a tuition bill, which means I had to borrow extra for school supplies and books. I remember spending the first six weeks of school, my freshman year, doing whatever I could to survive because apparently a laptop was a requirement. In fact, I actually passed the class by the minimum grade because I didn't yet have a computer to complete the coursework. Suffice to say, my credit history was very young, not very diverse, and trending in the wrong direction. To be honest, if I had just a little more money to my name, this wouldn't be a problem, but this wasn't the case. Turns out that based on my credit report, I was to be coded as a high-risk employee, and thus the firm would no longer sponsor me to sit for any financial certification classes or exams. I couldn't even pay my own way. My only option was to sell life insurance. When I begged for reconsideration, the argument I got was that no one would feel comfortable having you manage their money if you can't manage your own. I thought this was odd, right? 
you don't just walk into a money manager or a fiduciary and say, hey, before we move forward, can I run your credit right quick? I just explained to them that, look, I have fairly average money management skills for a recent college grad. I was just forced to over leverage myself in order to even get in the classroom. They didn't care. My manager, who was also called my sponsor, told me not to worry about it, that it wasn't a big deal. He told me to move along with summer as planned. I already had material for the Series 65. Keep studying and let's work on selling life and health insurance. I said, okay, sure, let's do it. But what would this look like? He told me we would still have our weekly calls. He told me that this happens every once in a while, so no worries. I'll grind for a year and be able to be reevaluated. He told me to make sure I stay up on everything and don't hesitate to ask questions. He told me that as long as I do fine for the next year, we should be in good shape. And then he didn't call the next week. Then sent me to voicemail when I called him and he didn't call me again, nor respond to any of my emails. And neither did his boss. Honestly, I'd never been ghosted by a place of employment before. This meant I just wasted the last six weeks of my summer. I had two weeks left on my lease and the following week, I had 25 apartment appointments set up in various locations around Chicago. I didn't have a car, so I booked train tickets because plane tickets were too expensive. I had worked the whole summer teaching, so I had some money saved up. I was supposed to move to Chicago, but I never did. So what did I do? Now, I could have moved in with my mother, but in the summer of 2010, while I was on tour playing snare drum for a top five drum and bugle corps, I received a call from my mother to explain to me that she was no longer going to be living in the state where I lived. In the state I went to high school in, in the state I was attending college in, she and the rest of my family were still feeling the aftershock of that great recession. And she had began to, for a lack of better term, panic. She had just spent nearly 15 years working in the hospital that serviced our entire county and now was left with nothing but a barely contributed to 401k plan and living in a town whose unemployment rate jumped to over 16% whose labor force dropped by 19% and whose poverty had risen to over 36%. She couldn't see an end in sight and decided it best to venture nearly a thousand miles south to what would eventually be an even worse economy. My mother thinks I hold a grudge against her for this decision she made. And to some extent, I can see the little repairs she attempts to do when we talk on the phone or in person. It's this odd undertone of amelioration where she gladly lets me lecture her on things, promises to think about them, and then nicely dismisses basic frameworks that I share with her. Even my grandmother told me that I needed to stop being so hard on my mom because she was just doing what she thought was best for her at the time. Now the truth is, well, I was never actually upset at my mother for moving. I mean, it's what I would have done too. In fact, I advocate for people who still live in my hometown to get the F out and don't look back. The town is like a quicksand and if you don't figure out how to climb out of it, you'll be there forever. I think a lot of hometowns are like this. And what's worse is that this particular town does a phenomenal job of tying an anchor around your ankles so that even if you do get out, you'll get pulled back in eventually. Now, any animosity I had against my mother at the time was actually due to a trip she made. 
in which it was obvious she had clear intentions of seeing her grandchildren, my niece and nephew, and maybe bumping into me in the process. Now, I've since grown up from this little ordeal and think it's petty to really give it any time of day, but I do believe every seed we plant will eventually flourish. And it took about nine and a half years for my mother to gather the courage and tell me that moving back in the year of 2010 was one of the biggest mistakes she ever made. So in a nutshell, moving in with my mother post undergrad was not an option. So I called my grandma, my sweet grandma Rosemary. And I asked if she could use some help around the house and in her garden in exchange for room and board. I had spent the last summer with her and the most recent Christmas break, so it wasn't like it seemed odd for me to ask. And even though I didn't necessarily plan for it, I did drop a few hints and plant a couple seeds during winter that I might need a place to stay temporarily until my new job started after graduation. Luckily, she said yes. And with the help of my girlfriend at the time, now wife, we packed up the trailblazer her parents let her use during the summer and headed back to my hometown where I kept trying to get out of, but that damn anchor kept pulling me back in. Once back home, I lined up a few drum teaching gigs that would help sustain me throughout the summer while I figured a few things out. And it allowed me to contribute a little bit to my grandma now that I was going to be using her water and electricity, and I would rarely say no to any of her home cooked meals. Job hunting post-grad was odd. I mean, especially in my hometown, the main employers in the city do a very purposeful job in hunting for talent outside of the local population. And these aren't small employers either. And after a while, I would have to start looking outside of the city and eventually the county in order to secure employment. In the meantime, while interviewing for several places and continuing to throw my resume in every direction it would land, I spent every weekend teaching drums for a world-class indoor percussion line. For those of you who have never heard of WGI or World Guard International, it's an organization that oversees the competitive nature of indoor marching percussion, guard, and winds. This is where you go to see the art form really being pushed to its creative limits. And even though it's not the cleanest or the best execution of the musical art, it is a really cool space where kids get to learn and perform as musicians. And when you're in the top few groups who are perennial champions, it also means you're amongst the very best marching percussionists in the world. So to have the opportunity to teach these individuals after I marched among them was an immense honor. And I think I took advantage of it while I was in the moment. So on a Thursday night or a Friday afternoon, I would borrow my grandma's car and scoot over to the area I was teaching in and be gone until a Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening if a teaching weekend bled into a production meeting, which was often the case. And this one activity that had taught me how to perform and act, it taught me the intricacies of teamwork and collaboration. It taught me varying levels of leadership and how to fight for others. And it taught me a lot of different things that would later click for me and ultimately where I learned to watch my tone. But this activity was not always exactly good for me. It was a normal weekend. Early in the week, my grandmother and I went to church together and we went grocery shopping and I took her dog on a long walk after I cut the grass. And eventually I got in the car, filled it with gas and went to teach. I believe we were going through auditions at the time, which is a mock weekend, usually goes from Friday afternoon to Sunday afternoon. And it allows us to oversee and preview the potential of incoming talent. It also allows us to gauge our talent bucket and help define how we can curate the show 
to deliver a good product that is also achievable by our performers. Camp went really well, and we thought we were in a place to continue where we came from, which was a top five group in the world. We felt very confident with the show concepts that we had and the talent that we were attracting. I was able to move through my obligations by the end of the day Saturday, so after the prospective members were let free for evening snack, shows, and dinner, I joined the staff at this amazing bar slash Coney Island down the street with its 15-page food menu and dollar beer specials, crashed at a place we were sleeping, and left before the sun rose. My grandmother usually liked to sleep in on Sundays, especially after she would get lost in a few movies or shows on Saturday night. Definitely a night owl. So I knew I would have to sneak in because the dog would bark or I would accidentally wake her up and I didn't want to do that. So I pulled into the driveway, got out and closed the car door lightly. No barks from the dog so far. It was basically dawn. There was a light fog on the horizon and it was almost fall. The air was crisp and clean. The temperature was perfect for a hoodie or a crew neck, but not yet cold enough where you needed a coat. My grandma's house was small and was essentially a craftsman that was built in 1901. The side entrance that opened into the kitchen was what we used as the front door because she didn't want people walking right into her living room from the front porch. So when you came into the side entrance, you walked right into the dining area of the kitchen with bedrooms and laundries off down a hallway to your right and the living room bathroom sort of ahead and to the left down another hallway. I climbed up the front stairs, slowly opened the screen door and inserted my key into the lock. Still no dog bark. After unlocking the lock, I twisted the handle and slowly opened the front door. All of a sudden, I was smacked in the face with a strong scent of urine. Now my grandma's dog, which used to be my mother's dog before she moved away, was getting up in age. I think she was around 12, she was going blind, and I was immediately concerned she must have not been able to hold her bladder through the night. Not common, but it happened every once in a while. So I rushed in so I could get to work and help clean up. Before I got all the way in the dining area, my grandma called out my name. Confused, I said, Grandma, what's going on? Over here, she said. I looked in the direction of the hallway to the living room and there was my grandma lying on the floor in the hallway. She had collapsed and fell Friday night after her blood glucose levels fell too low and she had a diabetic episode. She had been in the hallway on the hardwood floor in her nightgown since Friday night. I rushed to her and said, what do you need first before I start calling people? She asked for a high density chocolate treats from the freezer and a blanket. She wanted the heat turned up and of course she needed help getting up. She was on the heavy side with back, knee, elbow and hand arthritis. She was so weak from not eating for days that not only could she not pull herself up, I wasn't going to be able to do it alone. Eventually, we would get her up and into her chair. I was able to get her fed. I helped clean her up because I know she was embarrassed for her current state. And that day would mark the beginning of the rapid end and the final chapter of my grandmother's life. In less than six weeks, she would take her final breath. Losing a family member is hard. It's hard for anyone. It's hard for everyone. And I don't wish for anyone to ever have to go through that, especially on their own. But it's also a natural part of life. And in the end, we all have to suffer in this way, unfortunately. 
Now, I never really got the opportunity in the moment to really suffer, to mourn, or grieve. I was the only grandchild of color for my grandma. The very grandma who said while I was young and in the process of potentially being diagnosed with ADHD, which I never was, that I was an abomination and that I would struggle for the rest of my life because I was a biracial kid. The same idea when brought up around most of or all of my white friends and family is always dismissed as something that came with being born during the Great Depression in America, something that came from another era. Like, oh, it's no big deal, Tony. She's just from that other time, right? Now, don't get me wrong. I love my grandma and in fact became increasingly close to her over the last three years of her life. And I believe gave her a glimpse into my uniqueness as her grandson. It was my friends and I who were the only ones who visited so frequently. She birthed five boys, one girl, and raised them all on her own on a nurse's salary. All of them except one son left the state and only called on holidays. The one son who stayed behind lived in the same city across town. And again, he only visited or called for the holidays. Of the six children, she amassed an incredible double digit group of grandchildren, but only one was ever around. And it's not like I did it to prove anything. I just think family should be that family. I also recognized that she was getting old. She lived on her own for so long with just her dog and I couldn't do much, but just being around was helpful. And as we grew closer and closer, she shared stories and wisdoms that she never shared with any of her other grandchildren or children. And I hold that as sacred and I cherish my memories with her. I honestly think I was able to change her entire opinion on the idea of me as a grandchild into becoming her absolute favorite grandchild. And no one can change my mind on this. But in the moment, I never got the chance to truly grieve and mourn her. Out of our entire family, the second youngest grandchild, me, was left with the sole responsibility of everything. Power of attorney, funeral arrangements, will reading, estate planning. Think of it, you name it, I was in charge of it. And as I watched almost overnight, how all six of her children were suddenly able to get into town and over to her house. I watched as I sat at the table with my mother and five uncles, all a minimum 25 years my senior, looked to me to answer questions and make final decisions to all the proper people. I watched as no one lended a hand and instead either tried to make their presence felt or just go through the motions. I watched as people, family, actually took advantage of the situation. Two people asked me what was happening to the house because they might need it. There were people arguing over who was going to get what item they swear was promised to them, like a china cabinet or an old table sewing machine. I remember scrambling, trying to get everything to move smoothly and being stopped by people who would be holding something of sentimental or monetary value in their hands asking if they could have it. I watched as people sat huddled and whispered loudly enough that I could hear them asking why I was the one that was given everything. Or first off, where the fuck were y'all when your mother or your grandmother was on her own? You come in here asking for handouts and favors and special treatment when you hadn't called her in months. For some of you, years. Now, of course, this is what I wanted to say, among so many other things I had going on in my head, but it's not what I could say. I had to be calm in the storm. I couldn't deny the guilt I felt for leaving my grandmother that weekend. And I was able to remain calm. I was able to become the adult in the room. 
and I was able to remain calm. I was able to become the adult in the room, the one to give orders and not take shit from anyone. I was the one who had to take care of things financially, physically, emotionally, and it wasn't until I embraced my best friend and brother that I shed a tear. There was something stealing about this event that has led me to approach life in such a different way ever since. And when I think about it, when I really begin to walk it back, I can see this unforgiving trend of disappointment. Whether it was the first time I experienced what it felt like to be evicted when I was three or four years old and coming home to see my toys in a dumpster, or the first time after my parents divorced was finalized that my dad said he would come get me to hang out or the second, or third, or 20th time that he never showed up. There are so many examples that I can think of, and I think we can all walk back down the timeline of our lives to moments that have impacted us and see a common thread, which is that that catalyst of these impactful moments are oftentimes outside of our own proximity of control. I couldn't make that investment firm change its protocols. I couldn't change how my relatives would react to loss. I couldn't force my parents to have better fiscal responsibility or force my dad to care more about my upgrading just to be around more. I couldn't force that out of him. These things were frankly outside of my proximity of control. And coming to that realization has led me to react and approach things in a way uncharacteristic to who I was as a young adult versus who I am now. It's something I had to stumble upon and figure out on my own, and honestly something I wish I would have figured out at a younger age. And so I wanna help you and others develop this skill set. Right after we take a pause to reflect so we don't become tone deaf, I'll take you through how to combat these life-defining moments before we realize they are so defining and use a specific skill to get over any hurdle in life. Whether that's fitness, health goal, professional, you name it. This one skill can help you push through any barrier.
Can you remember the last time you were sitting in your car, minding your own business, maybe listening to a podcast or your favorite album at the time? You sort of perfunctorily glance in your side view mirrors and rear view mirror, and for the most part, you're going through the motions of driving. Staying in your lane, probably going a few to a dozen ticks over the speed limit, then all of a sudden you've got someone tailgating you. And I mean, this person is so close, you can't even see their headlights anymore. You can clearly see in your rear view mirror who this person is. You can see the mole on their cheek, what shirt they're wearing. You look down and you see you're going 10 miles over the speed limit, but they really want to go like 20. Or maybe you were minding your business and some jerk just zoomed around you or cut you off. Or at a four-way stop, someone gets to a complete stop before you and then waves you through. Or maybe you live in an area where road construction is a common annoyance in your daily or weekly commute. And no matter what, you know that everyone is going to merge two miles early before the right lane ends because it seems like literally no one understands how to zipper merge. What's worse is if you try to zipper merge, someone has to be a single file line merge security guard from Top Flight Security, and they sit in the middle of the highway so that you don't cut in line in front of them. They blow their proverbial whistle at you, then glance over to their passenger and say with a very serious face, Top Flight Security of the world, Craig. Or maybe it's just me. How about a busy day at work or while you were looking for work, and it's the end of the day and you have to run after your bus or train or tram, barely make it on board and as you walk toward a seat, someone takes it. Or you can imagine walking into your favorite cafe and the line is long, or when you finally got your order, no tables were left to sit at. Or maybe you've ordered food at a restaurant for delivery and when you finally get it, the order is wrong. And maybe you place a call to a customer service line and get a robot who gives you a robot who gives you a human who doesn't speak your native language, who can't help you, wants to transfer you to another department, and then gives you back to a robot. There are so many of these stories that are, on the surface, more than mildly annoying. Even when you peel them apart and look deep into what's happening, they are largely insignificant. But when we are in the moment, they don't really feel like nothing. How dare you ride my ass in traffic? What happens if someone runs out into the road? Who the fuck do you think you are cutting me off, you idiot? Damn it, you saw that I was going to sit in that seat where you had one job, read my food order, and make it. Jeez. But there are also other stories that are more significant. Like you just lost a loved one to COVID-19. Or maybe you lost your job or was put on furlough as a result of the pandemic or you were put in a position of having to choose between healthcare coverage and rent. Now, I won't go into politics, but these experiences are very salient. They're very real and have made an impact on very real people. Maybe not for you or anyone you know. And oftentimes when we aren't close enough to something, we can't understand the true gravity of the ramifications. But for real people all around the world, real things like these happen to them. When situation like these when situations like these happen to us, they are awful. They feel unfair, like the world is against us. But I think what is most important about any of these examples, there is ultimately an element that is outside of our control. 
Now that's not to say that in every situation in which something terrible happens to us, it's not our fault. No, not at all. In fact, I tend to look at most negative outcomes that happen to me at least, and try to see what I did wrong. I don't always come to a conclusion that it was my fault, but when I was sort of growing up in the performance arts, the hardest thing about being a snare drummer is that you have the shortest sound that is usually a frequency that cuts through everything else. So when you try to get nine to 10 people in a line to play, not just the same rhythms, but with the same touch, tempo, style, volume, timbre, and then it gets down to the granular items like stick height, stick angle, drum angle, stroke type, hand on stick placement, bead placement, independent finger placement. The list goes on and on and on. And when someone out of nine or 10 messes something up because the goal is always to play together, you sort of have to take a real look in the mirror approach to fix the errors. Because in those situations, mental slips happen, physical fatigue happens. In essence, maybe it was me. And in large part, I take that mentality forward in everything I do. But when there are elements that are out of my control, like if all the things I listed above is true, but my drum falls off or it's raining or someone runs into me from behind where I can't see them, these are completely out of my control. When I think back to my grandmother, as tragic as it was, how my relatives reacted was largely out of my control. Her diabetes was largely out of my control. My first job out of college's decision to not trust me was largely out of my control. And of course, I can absolutely take the other side and take ownership about these incidents. And I do, but that's not the point I'm driving forward. Let's paint a separate picture. Can you remember the last time you skimmed an article? picked out the important headlines or keywords. I mean, I'll definitely go into how to skim articles when we dive into how to study for school or how to read for information rather than learning, especially when it comes to reading business cases. But generally, what you are doing is being selective with the bits of information that you're taking in. We can all imagine either being a teenager or you can imagine the teenager in a Hollywood script who's getting a talking to by their parents or they are, say, listening to someone else talk to them, and they respond with what they wanted to hear. You may have heard of this kind of reaction called selective hearing. In fact, not only do you probably do this, but I bet you can think of people who seem to never really listen to the words you say. In fact, they're probably just sitting there waiting for their turn to respond. Or you can think of the last time you endlessly scrolled through Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, something catches your eye. You click, you engage selectively. Selective engagement, selective listening, selective attention span. Not only are we all well-equipped in this skill, but we live and love in a world that not only accepts this, but essentially requires it, at least in the Western world. I'd love some other perspectives, but information overload is all around us. And thus we adapt, for instance, Maybe you're in a relationship and you've gotten really good at watching the game while your partner talks to you. Because this particular story couldn't wait until the commercial break or halftime. Or maybe you've gotten really good at sitting on the phone while playing a game, cooking, cleaning, driving, etc. Most people claim this to be a part of their superior multitasking skills. And in reality, we are all just selecting what's important to us at that instance. We think about it, we act on it, we learn and love and live in a world that accepts this. 
I can remember being an adolescent around when video games started to really pick up steam. This was sort of that late N64 PS1 era, and my mom would come in and give me a set of directions or instructions, just talking to me. And I, of course, would never pause the game. And eventually the conversation would come to a point where she would say, hey, are you listening to me? And at one point in time, I wasn't, obviously, but I also didn't have any way to respond. And so I started to think about this, and out of nowhere, I developed this really elegant way of cataloging the last 15 to 20 words that were spoken to me so that I could just regurgitate them verbatim whenever I was prompted by this, are you listening question. This evolved in the classroom. And so when a teacher would call on me because they suspected I wasn't paying attention or maybe they were trying to catch me in the act of talking, suddenly I was prepared to respond. My wife hates when I use this on her, especially in a work from home environment when I can sometimes be much more plugged in than normal. And she is always quick to redefine the difference between being able to repeat what she says and actually responding to what she is saying. Thus, I've learned to now pack away the answer or response to a conversation and sort of carry on with where my attention is. Yet in marriage, and I advise you all to do this in the relationships that matter to you, it's just better for your well-being to put everything on hold or off to the side and pay full attention to your partner. Trust me, it pays dividends. But in terms of dealing with other situations, the situations that we started this topic on, I think there are other skills, or at least one skill specifically, that can truly be useful for navigating and pushing through almost any scenario in life. In fact, I've yet to find a scenario in my life, either looking back on or currently navigating, where this skill hasn't been my little secret weapon. And to be honest, it's not for everyone. It's even potentially counteractive or counterproductive for some personality types, but for me, it's perfect. Now this skill, I'll call it, is something that you can think about more purposefully as you walk through life, and that is the utilization of apathy. Apathy is a noun in the English language that means simply a lack of interest, enthusiasm, or concern. Its origin comes from the Greek root word pathos, which is more or less an ancient way of saying emotion. Most scholars say it's closer to the idea of suffering or passion, and I would argue that is sort of grounded in how the Greeks looked at emotion and its effects on the rational being, especially when Platonic philosophy really introduces us to Thumas. But I tend to lean more towards Aristotle's use of the term, which is a rhetorical device to create emotion. And you can think of pathos as a rhetorical device in the following famous story. For sale, baby shoes never worn. When I first heard this story, I experienced a simultaneous stomach drop and chills because there's so much and so little. This is pathos. So back to apathy. The letter A, which translates to without and pathos, when combined, translates to without emotion. The Greeks called it apatheia. Today, we call it apathy. And a lot of times when people are discussing the idea of apathy or they label someone as apathetic, there is typically a negative connotation associated with its use, especially if you don't truly understand the word or if when hearing the word, you tend to think of the root word pathetic when someone says it. Now, the morphology is quite intriguing when you see that pathos as the root word meant suffering, which then gave us pathetikos, which meant sensitive. 
the Latin language took it and turned it into pathetic, meaning to affect your emotions. None of these are actually negative on their own, right? Like we could easily see someone reacting with laughter or crying to a scene in a movie, and we could rightfully label that scene as pathetic because it affected the viewer's emotion. But you and I know it's not at all how we would use the word. Even though the pathetic scene caused an empathetic reaction from the view, instead, we always associate these terms, apathy, apathetic, and pathetic with negative ideas. When someone is being pathetic or someone is being apathetic, well, they're both seen as bad. But even when you look closer at the morphology of apathetic, it's literally the opposite of pathetic, even though we see it as synonymous. You know what? Let me step down from my soapbox on sociolinguistic shifts that annoy me and instead dive deeper into the power of apathy. So apathy, I mean, if we look at it on its face, it means to show a lack of interest or my favorite sort of definition, a lack of concern. To be apathetic is to have a lack of concern. So then what happens when we start to think about being selective with our apathy? If someone is riding my ass on the highway, all I have to do is move over. If someone took the last seat right before I was going to sit down, I can make my own seat by leaning against the wall or walking to another location. Someone just bumped into me while walking down the sidewalk or in the club. So, if the economy tanks and I lose my job or get placed on furlough, I've been diagnosed with an autoimmune disease or cancer, I've lost an animal or someone close, my high school sweetheart leaves me, my car breaks down in the rain and my cell phone is dead, I didn't get the job or promotion or the interview, any factors that are largely out of my control, that is, some other force determine the outcome, I employ selective apathy so that I can assess the situation and move on. The biggest hurdle you will ever overcome is getting over yourself. The default is to find someone or something to blame. And as a result, we then start the path of achieving less than our potential. It's so much easier to just decide what to care about. We already do it. But selective apathy is about points in time, snapshots of life, not ongoing or existential crises. This thought process is the reason I literally never use the snooze button on my alarm doesn't make sense to me. I was sleeping, my alarm goes off at a time I set for when I needed to be up. It doesn't make sense to me. I was sleeping, my alarm goes off at a time I set for when I needed to be up. What is 15 extra or five extra minutes really gonna do for me? If I wanted to sleep in five or 10 minutes, I would build that into my alarm time. The day has started and I have no control over it. So get up and get to work. Now you could say, ah, come on Tones. I can control how much extra sleep I'm gonna get. And you would be absolutely right, but that's not the important part. The day started, the sun might be shining, depending on how early you get up. These outside forces are out of your control. So we get up and we get to work. Selective apathy is a mental model that allows you to take a mental snapshot of something and decide whether or not it holds significance in what you are going to move forward not why you have to move forward or how you are going to move forward, but what you are going to do moving forward. Sometimes we just have to take a step back and ask, why do I care about this? How do you become apathetic though without a very obvious slippery slope? This is honestly tough, right? I mean, once we get into apathetic mindset about one thing, it's so easy to apply it to all things. When it involves other parties or other people, I think it starts to dip into the territory of your emotional intelligence or EQ. 
you really have to step back, breathe, and see where the person is coming from. Their reaction to anything is really out of your control. You can impact them for sure, but your goal should always be towards reconciliation, assuming you are in a confrontation. But if it's something as insignificant as someone cutting you off or bumping you, really anything that happens because of human error or just like you or me, someone is wrapped up in their own world, <laughs> it's not really that big of a deal. Give them a look that you expect an apology and move on. The real success, however, comes with actions and reactions, not necessarily consequences or ramifications, which are very similar yet distinct ideologies. Selective apathy is always a present perfect ideal. What I mean by this is that you could do something terrible, like speeding. The act of speeding is objectively illegal, but not necessarily bad. Going 26 in a 25 is illegal, but not necessarily bad. But if you get caught speeding and get a ticket, that instance of getting pulled over is when you employ selective apathy. That was the action or reaction that happened. Meaning you can't dwell on the fact that you were speeding or that you will have to pay a fine. The fact that you got pulled over is the culmination and essentially the nexus of your past actions and future consequences. Meaning your focus has to be here. I would even go a step further. Once you get the ticket, now you have the fine. You can't control that number. You go pay it. If you go to court, you can't control if the judge throws it out or he keeps it. Pay the fine and move on. That is, we can't always look at anything in life and say, well, if I would have or should have or could have or insert any modal you want, sure. But no one lives their life actively thinking about what they should have done for a future consequence of a present action. If you can do that, you'll be unstoppable, but you can't. So instead you have to look at it like, okay, that happened, now let's get to work. You might push back here and think about simple risk assessment, like running the multiple scenarios of an outcome, which sure, I'm pretty sure a lot of people do that, but generally for transactions, like buying an expensive pair of jeans or picking a stock to invest in, you can think about these and the decision factors, but in the moment when we are perfunctorily going through life and then life hits us from left field, we have to see it as it is and move on. Something I had to really figure out on the fly when one of the most heartbreaking things happened to me in 2020. I promise a story for another time. Now, full disclosure, this only has to do with life-shattering events. If someone tries to kill me or sexually assault me, these are unforgivable acts and not like anything we are talking about. This is not a place for apathy. It's a place for fight, not flight. You fight for yourself, you fight for others. But for those potentially life-shattering events, like being called a nigger, or something more racially insidious is said in my direction, Maybe if you're a woman listening to this and someone made a sexist remark to you, or fill in the blank of when that asshole crosses the line and enters into being disrespectful or hurtful in a way that could impact your life. This is touchy because you do, I think, have to employ selective apathy with a call to action. If you see it, say something. If it happens to you, honestly, it's such a case-by-case -case scenario. I think we are in a time where the real bigots and racists in the world are finding very creative ways of getting away with their white supremacy or patriarchal ideals. What's worse is they've gotten exceptionally good at defending their position by taking the place of, ironically, apathy. 
the current playbook calls for them to try to take the high road and call you out for bringing race into it first or call you out for making it about anything else than what was literally said. All of a sudden, verbal implicatures are thrown out and how dare you react to that? That's not what he meant. It's not what he said, they'll tell you. They will tell you you shouldn't have or it's no big deal. Don't worry about it, be apathetic about it. It's all a lie. Because these snapshots in life can have life altering actions that keep you and others like you down. It's so easy to tell someone else how they should have reacted or thought or felt about a transgression against them. That's why I'm here to tell you, you can act in the future, not how you should have done anything. You've done nothing wrong, it's just that now you have another tone in your toolbox. It's tacit, but when it clicks, it will empower you to move forward and upward, no matter the situation. Overtones. Life is filled with so many instances of shit that just seems unfair, but we have to figure out how to look at these objectively all the time. It is something that needs practice, that has to be thought about purposefully. And when we get to a point where we can identify these snapshots or clicks in life, we can start to employ selective apathy. We are already, as a race, very good at being selective. Selective attention span, selective hearing. We select our friends, mates, favorite foods. We are very good at selecting, which means we can be very good at selecting when to care about subjectively important things in life that happened either as a result of something we did or due to external forces that we have no control over. When applied effectively, selective apathy as a response can be your superpower for navigating virtually any situation that is negative and push through to a new frontier. Undertones. Selective apathy is a powerful but dangerous tool when we don't think about other people. It's so vital that we care about others that we are empathetic to their position. Sometimes we might get into a situation where we are literally being attacked, it seems, but we can't use that as ammo, only as a reference point. We also have to be careful about significance, not just to us, but to others. Being selectively apathetic might mean you decide something that happened isn't important to someone else. It could lead to deceit and cover-ups, but it is never our place to tell someone else what is important to them. In fact, it's very healthy to open a dialogue and let people know, hey, this happened. This action itself is not significant because it has happened and we can't change it, but here's what we can do moving forward. Now, I realize I'm contradicting myself here, but the most significant undertone here is self-awareness. You have to be introspective in real time, not in a reflective mode. You have to recognize when you default back to a place of blame, pointing fingers and refusing accountability or responsibility. I've seen relationships, both professional and romantic and platonic too, end because one part saw something happen they didn't like and then blame someone. It's counterproductive, even if it seems intuitive. When in these situations, you have to always take a step back and ask, why is this important to me? Not the outcome, not the reason it's happening, but the actual thing that happened. The middle point between the reasoning something happened and the consequences thereafter. Stay calm, cool, and collected. If this idea struck a tone, give us feedback and start a discussion. Feel free to reach out to me personally. If you wanna share a story that is like this one or any of the others you hear, 
I would love to hear it. I would also really enjoy the opportunity to eventually have you share your story with others right here on Life Tones. You never know when your tonal information might just change someone's life. Because the success of me is the success of we. On our next episode, we dive into the idea of peer pressure and how it can covertly shape the way we live and love. Tune in next time to find out how to recognize the less than obvious life cycle of peer pressure. It's been an honor and a privilege to be here with you. I look forward to our time together. Thank you. Life Tones is written and produced by me. Tonal Soundscapes, composed by me. If you enjoy Life Tones, remember to rate and review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For additional content, follow us at Life Tones Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or visit us at tonesoflife.com.